Hello, and welcome to the Literati Cast. I'm Jennifer Loughran, and I'm a senior agent at the Andrea Brown Literary Agency. I rep kids' books from picture books through YA and everything in between. On this podcast, I bring you interviews with my publishing pals to give you the scoop on all things kids' books. Last month, somebody suggested to me that I interview the author of Story Genius, Lisa Cron, but I had never read the book, so I remedied that, and I was immediately hooked by the inventive way she has of looking at craft and storytelling via brain science. So brief caveat before we get down to business here, as with any writing advice, be it from an editor, a New York Times bestselling author, your favorite teacher, or your mom, all writing advice is suspect and should be taken with a grain of salt. Not all methods work for all writers, and that's fine. The story genius method works remarkably well for some authors who sing its praises, and other people are probably skeptical, and that's okay. I figure, take what advice you can use, leave the rest. But I do find the discussion fascinating, and I hope you do too. With that said, I'm so excited to bring you today's guest. Lisa Cron has worked at a publisher and as an agent, as a producer for TV. She now teaches writing at UCLA and is a story coach for writers. Her books are Wired for Story and, most recently, Story Genius. Let me see if I can get Lisa on the line. Hi, Lisa. Hello. So I already introduced you a bit before you joined me, but perhaps you could tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. Okay. Um, (laughs) I never know where to begin with this. Um, I have just spent my, uh, the truth is, more decades than I want to admit to being alive working (laughs) with writers and manuscripts, you know, beginning, um, you know, in publishing. I read for the studios, book to film. Um, I have, I teach in the UCLA Extension Writers Program. Um, I taught in the School of Visual Arts. They have an MFA program in visual, uh, in visual narrative. I taught there for, for several years. And, you know, basically what I do now is I work one-on-one with writers, um, really helping them find the story because through all of that, I, I really came to believe, and I firmly believe this, hundred percent that writing is taught wrong everywhere. And that that is why, uh, you know, when you look at the statistics, they say that, and, and this is, I think I, I have a feeling you'll probably, you know, agree with me with a couple of these that, you know, that 97 out of a hundred people who sit down to write a first draft, don't make it to the end. And that's just of the first draft for like three people out of a hundred are going to, you know, make that first draft. And then, when you take that 3% and then you winnow that down to the number that then, you know, kind of do several drafts and, and really decide to pitch it to an editor or, or uh, an agent, that, and the statistic, uh, the statistic I've heard out there is 96% of that remaining 2% get rejected. And it's funny, I was talking to, to my agent, Lori, you know, a while back, and I said, I think, I think. I think 96% rejection is a low number. I think it's a higher number than that. And she went, yeah, I think so too. Um, Yeah, I would say it probably is. Yeah, yeah, way higher. But I mean, I do think that just finishing a manuscript is a huge accomplishment because truly, hardly anybody does it. So, (laughs) Oh, I agree because at the end of the day, and that's what I say to writers all the time, at the end of the day, I mean, the one thing I think that you and I know that, you know, that, that writers out there might not know is how many really great manuscripts 
never see the light of day just for one reason or another they just don't get published or if they do they just don't you know hit the zeitgeist in the way that they you know that you really feel like they should and i think all of us out there <laughs> have had that experience of reading a book and thinking how the heck did this get into print yeah. i mean you know it's a crapshoot yeah. <laughs> it really is a crapshoot that's why i firmly believe that at the end of the day knowing what it is you want to say what the point you're making is why it's important to you to make that point because as writers we're the most powerful people on the planet you know because stories the most powerful communication tool so as a writer you're out there you are changing how people view things and i think that that writers of kidlit and ya's are the most powerful people because you know for adult writers you're you're to some degree changing the world view of the people who are reading your novels but they've already got a really pretty you know fully formed and you know and 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 deftly and completely believed world view that's become part of their self identity with kids they're just forming that for the first time it's so formative i mean you're there at the at the base where they're just starting to try to figure out how things work and the way the world works and you know and and what all stories are about which is you know human nature how do we treat each other what do what do we need to do in order to be seen to have the courage to be seen for who we are and and i don't mean this in a in a in a, in a cynical or transactional way but how to get our own needs met so that we can survive and so, you know, kids authors, I mean, it's I don't understand why teaching isn't the most revered and highly paid profession, you know, on the planet. Um it I I I will never understand that. Amen. So let's get into Story Genius. An author recommended Story Genius your book to me, mm -hmm. your most recent book, and I've recommended it in turn to several authors. I think it's such an interesting way to look at story, how our brains are wired to respond to narratives and how an author can use knowledge about that to their advantage when writing. Mm -hmm. So can you give us like the nutshell premise of Story Genius, and then we'll unpack it a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are, and again, this is, this, this is something I went into in more depth in my first book, Wired for Story, but, but we are wired for story. We make sense of everything in the world through narrative. And that actually is what the narrative, when people talk about what's the narrative thread of your novel, and they make the tragic mistake of thinking that means the plot and it doesn't story mm. is not about the plot the narrative is not the plot just simply writing a plot is 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 how what i think and you might have had this experience too what 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 tanks most manuscripts i mean i can't tell you how many manuscripts i've read where if you asked me what's it about i'd say it's about 300 pages i have no idea yeah. You know, it's just a bunch of things that happen. So what a story really is, and I'll just say it if you don't mind really quickly and then, and then quickly break it down, is that a story is about how what happens affects someone who's in pursuit of a deceptively difficult goal and how that person changes internally as a result. And that what it's about, you know, that, that something that happens is, it's the surface of the story. It's just the plot. And it's, story's not about the plot. I was like, if I could leave you with nothing, let it be that. Stories are not, so it's like, it up to me. And this is something that I know is like incendiary, like literally and figuratively. It would burn <laughs> every story structure book from the hero's journey on up. Because for one thing, it's a total misnomer. It's not story structure, it's plot structure. 
And the story is not about the plot. The story is about how, you know, what, ha- how, about how what happens affects someone. And that someone is your protagonist. And the protagonist is the reader's avatar in the story. I mean, I think of story as a Vulcan mind meld between your protagonist and your reader. And to make the point, everything that happens over there in the plot gets its meaning and emotional weight based on one thing and one thing only. And that's how it's affecting your protagonist. I mean, there's no drama without it affecting your birth, death, fall, the Roman empire is, believe it or not, neutral and bland unless it's affecting your protagonist, but not affecting them generically or in general, but affecting them in pursuit of this difficult goal that they've got, deceptively difficult, because as we both know, it seems like it's going to be easy in the beginning. And by the end, it's like, if I don't know how hard it was going to be, I would have stayed in bed. But, <laughs> you know, it's that, it's that story problem, plot problem, because story is about change. It's about how we deal with change that, you know, and problems that we cannot avoid, which means that there is something difficult that the protagonist is going to have to deal with. But not just, you know, and the, this is a problem when people just create plots, not just physically difficult or it's just hard. It's difficult because it's costing them something emotionally or internally in order to, to deal with it. So it's how what happens, that's the plot, affects someone, that's the protagonist, in pursuit of a deceptively difficult goal, that is that plot problem that they cannot opt out of. They have to deal with it. And this is the key thing. And how that person changes internally as a result. And it is that internal change, the way their worldview changes, scene by scene by scene by scene, that is what your story is actually about. In other words, the story is not about the plot. The story is about how the plot affects the protagonist. The story is not about the external change. It's not about what happens. It's about why. It's about an internal change. And that internal change is how the protagonist changes. And this is the whole core and point of all of it, which is, and writers will go all the time, what do you mean? What do you mean my protagonist needs to change? Change from what to what? What are you even talking about? And here's the point. All stories begin in medias res, which is a fancy Latin way of saying in the middle (laughs) of the thing, the thing being the story itself. So in other words, page one is the first half of the second part of the story. You have to develop the first half before you can get to the second half. Because all protagonists enter the story with two things already fully formed, something they want and have wanted for a long time, a long time relative to how old they are, you know, I mean, a a long time, if you've wanted something for a long time, and it's an adult novel, and you can enter the story at 40, you know, that's a long time. If you're a kid, and you're, you know, 10, a long, I mean, let's face it, when you're 10, a month is a long time. So, so, so it's, they enter with something they've wanted and wanted for a long time, there's something they want from before the story starts, before they have any idea, the dark and stormy night that that you're going to toss them into, dark and stormy night that they've probably you know brought on themselves, not in a finger-waggy, shame-on-you way, but because it's the consequence of choices that they've made. I mean, in life, it often feels like you know we have a problem and it, it came out of the blue, but it never comes out of the blue. <laughs> it's always something that has been building you know, to reach critical mass, so they, they come in with that, which sets their agenda from beginning to end, scene by scene by scene by scene, they're trying to bring that agenda to fruition, and a misbelief, which is the thing that has been probably, that has been holding them back from getting that thing they want. And a misbelief 
is a misbelief about human nature. It's not a misbelief about something logistical or factual or, you know, I thought the world was flat, turns out it's round, but something about the way that we, that we treat each other, what we need to do in order to, to, you know, to basically survive because that's what we're wired. We're wired to look at everything and go, are you safe or aren't you? Is this going to help me get what I want or isn't it? Not in a, again, not in a, in a cynical sort of way, but just in a, I want to survive to see tomorrow way. Um, and so that is the biggest, I, I mean, I'm big on myth busting. If you don't do this work in a story specific way, not in a birth to, you know, when the story starts bio of your character, which is worthless because you're going to ask a ton of questions that have nothing to do with the story that you're writing, but in a story specific way, going back and figuring out, you know, what it is with a worldview that your protagonist and really all characters are going to have, what their misbelief is, what that thing they want is, where it came from, what it means to them. Again, writing it as granularly as you would write the novel or the story itself. And I'm really big on busting myths because like I said, I think writing is taught wrong everywhere. So to be very clear, I would shout this on, you know, on, on, on the rooftops, uh, which is, yes, I am talking about backstory. Backstory is the most fundamental layer of any story you write. It is laced into every single page that you write. If you don't have the story-specific backstory that has created the problem that your protagonist is now going to be dealing with, then it's like saying, I'm going to write a novel about the most important turning point event in someone's life who I know absolutely nothing about. You literally can't do it. I firmly believe that that is why, you know, 97% of people don't even get, you know, to, to finishing a first draft. I mean, I mean, Jen, think, I think a lot of those nine, those, you know, 97 people give up because they can't finish the first page because they think you have to start with some beautiful, lovely, luscious sentence. And if the first sentence isn't right, why go to the second? And you know, that's basically it. Um, right. So anyway, so let me I could stop go on and you on. first. I am going to stop. I, yes. <laughs> I know. You can clearly go on and on. I can. <laughs> because I just asked you yeah. for the nutshell version, and that was not the nutshell version. I know. So. I know. I suck at, I suck at nutshells, I admit. <laughs> okay. So we kind of covered there. Yes. What's the difference between story and plot? Right. Um, and people, well, first of all, I wanted to talk uh, for a second, mm-hmm. because you mentioned specificity. Right. And I always say. Stories and specifics. That it, that's what it's all about. You know, when you're, whether you're writing a query letter or whatever, if you don't have those specific details that are just special to that person, right? It falls flat. Yeah. There's no story. But, um, yeah. I also know that you love an outline and to wrangle all those details about the characters before you even begin. But different writers work in different ways. Do you think you have to know all that stuff before 100%. you even start? I would say I don't. Believe, I don't like the word outline. Really, a hundred percent. hundred percent. You don't 100%. think that somebody could kind of reverse engineer never. and integrate the principles in your? Wow. Never. Okay. Never. I think reverse engineering. I never. I have never seen that happen or work ever, unless unless you're someone who literally comes in with a natural sense of story. I don't think that's talent. I think some people just have that. Very few. I can't think of anyone I've ever worked with actually who has that. And I, you know, and and some of them are quite successful. Um, But no, I do not. You cannot, because story logic is bottom up, not top down. What happens when people do, I mean, I think that is the big misunderstanding about 
you know, the, the notion of the shitty first draft, you know, Hemingway said all first drafts are shit. And, and it's true. You, you know, you need more than one draft, obviously. But, but the problem is that notion is deeply misunderstood by the writing one, you know, Anne Lamott, for instance, you know, who I love, I love bird, you know, uh, bird by bird or whatever it is. All those birds are great. But there's <laughs> one big mistake she makes. She says, you know, the, the, you know, shitty first draft. Okay. Got that. We're in agreement on that. She goes, but because of that, she calls it literally the child's draft. That's her word. It's a child's draft. And this is again, her word. And you can let everything out and romp all over the place. She goes, because at the end, no one's going to see it except, you know, who matters. And that, that couldn't be less true because the most important person in the process is going to see it. And that's the writer. You know, and, and then you look at it and you take a deep cleansing breath and you go, okay, this is all over the place and it's romping. Now I'll go in and I'll rewrite. And the problem is, again, this comes back to the brain stuff, is that our tacit allegiance is to what we've already written, as opposed to the story we're trying to tell, especially if we're not 100% sure what the story actually is. So they do what you just said. They try to reverse engineer. They look for the connective tissue and what didn't make sense before now really doesn't make sense because you can't do it. Because again, when you're looking for external, when you don't have it and people just write a plot, this is why plotting, I think is just almost as bad as pantsing, which I think is, I do not understand why anybody pantses. And again, (laughs) this is, I would say, I mean, the truth is I I often say, I would like to take the writing world and just, you know, and and the, the, the powers that be at and punch it in the face. (laughs) <laughs> it just doesn't work. I mean, think if you're writing a story about how somebody solves a problem and you, me, all of us walk onto the page or into the room with preconceived notions of what things mean, what we want and why. We're always there. In fact, as you know, uh, I was working with a writer who said, oh my God, I just, I just, uh, you know, I just read a review of this book and the guy pulled out something that you always say. It was a nonfiction book called Why Time Flies by, I think it was, I think it was Alan Burdick, I think was the name of the writer. But the quote was, neuroscientists believe that the core mechanism of our brain is a time machine to record past memories in order to predict the future. That's what we do. We are constantly trying to figure out what things mean and what what we want and what's going on based on what our past experience has taught us. That's what brings us into the problem that we're in. That's what tells us what things mean. I mean, sheesh, look at the state of the country at the moment. That's all you have to do to go, <laughs> wow, it is your past that is going to have you analyze. I mean, you know, I, I, I am the only thing, the only imaginary thing I'm thinking of now is that let's imagine that they're actually facts that we actually all agree on, (laughs) alternative facts out there. But, you know, but people are going to interpret them vastly differently based on what? Based on what their past experiences taught them. If you don't know that for your protagonist, all you can have is someone generic. And if you come up with a plot, again, the story is not about what happens. It's about why. It's about it's about human psychology and the way that we see things. So when you come up with a plot, even if you've got a plot and you've outlined a plot of this happens, that happens, this happens, and it seems like an external, you know, event driven, you know, cause and effect trajectory, the minute you plunk someone in it, the only way that person can react is very generically. And then you have them, they've got to do whatever the plot point that you've created is. And the truth is in a story, that plot point is going to force them to struggle, think about something, change a little bit. Character has an aha moment in every scene. And then that's going to change what they do next. But if what they do next is just hit another plot point you already came up with, not only is that character not going to be believable 
or, you know, or hook us or feel like, well, there's a Vulcan mind meld because we're not going to understand why they're doing what they're doing. Suddenly the plot points are going to fall apart. It doesn't work. Outlining, just outlining per se or plotting does not work. Pantsing, I think, is insane, frankly. I, do. <laughs> I admit it. I don't understand why anybody, anybody would do it. It's like stories are made up of layers. Every character has their own, I mean, the truth is every character has their own desire and misbelief, all of which spins off the protagonists. And how you could write all of that at once without knowing it and creating the before that they're bringing in that's causing them to go after what they're doing. I don't know how you'd even do that, Frank. What happens is that's how, and I'm sure you've probably read a lot of manuscripts, those, you know, beautifully written. So what's where what happens is the writer then falls back on their, what they've been taught writing wise. So they're trying to write really beautiful sentences or lovely metaphors or describe something in utter detail. Why? Because it's there not because of the reason that you go into any kind of granular detail in a story is because of the meaning that your POV character is reading into it based on what their story along agenda is. And is it going to help them or hurt them? The strategic inside Intel that you and me and all of us are constantly on the lookout for in our daily lives, you know, no matter what we're doing. So can you talk more about in your book, you talk about the third rail. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that? Yeah, back that a little bit. Absolutely. And that is exactly what we've been talking about. In other words, character comes into a story. What the story's actually about is not, are they going to solve the plot problem? What the story's about, as I said, is how that plot is going to force your protagonist to face or realize or see a misbelief. It's sort of like the present is what's going to make us reevaluate the past and make what's become unconscious conscious. That is the point of the plot. It's not about the plot. It's about what it makes the character realize. So the third rail is what the character enters the story and really clearly already wanting. Not It's not like they decide that they want it and that's what it's about once they've stepped onto the page. They have an agenda. They have something they've wanted since before the story starts. And it's not just what they want, but it's why they want it, what they think it's going to mean to them, what they think it'll say to the world about them. And they could be wrong. But, you know, Very often stories are about somebody thinks they want one thing and they get to the end only to discover that you know, it wasn't what they wanted. And this misbelief, again, a misbelief about human nature. For instance, you know, I mean, I think at the end of the day, most people are writing about the cost of human connection. You know, I, I want to be able to show you who I really am, but if I do, I'll feel vulnerable because you might use that against me. But I, you know, that, that, that conundrum, I want people to love me for who I am, but if I show them who they are, they won't like me. So I'll never show anybody who I am. So how do you, how do you, you know, how do you deal with that? So often it would be about say a kid who, <clears throat> wants to feel connection, but something early in life, a misbelief has taught that character that the more somebody tries to get to know the real you, the more they're really only going to use that to manipulate you. That would be a misbelief that you might, that might be true in, in the situation, the aha moment in the situation where the misbelief, you know, came into being might've been absolutely true. might've been adaptive behavior, you know, in a, in a, in a family, you know, completely adaptive behavior. It might've saved that character a lot of heartache. But if you take that belief out into the world of the nicer someone is to you, the more it seems like they really want to get to know you and care about you, the more they're just going to use that to manipulate you. Obviously, not only is that going to keep you from getting what you want, but it's going to cause you to misread the intent of, of people all the way through. 
So that's what the third rail is. It is that, that, that live wire between the desire and the misbelief that's sort of standing in its way. And everything that happens in the plot will get its meaning and emotional weight by causing the internal struggle that that protagonist is going to go through as they try to figure out what to do scene by scene by scene by scene. Because in every scene, a character needs to make a hard choice. In every scene, they struggle internally. That's why story is internal. That's why the other writing saw, I would love to punch in the face even harder, mm-hmm. is that notion of don't tell us what the character's thinking. You know, don't give us an info dump. Yeah, don't tell us if they're just going down memory lane, but story lives and breathes within your protagonists, the way that they're making sense of what's going on. It's, it's like, it's like in life, <clears throat> you know, you always hear that expression, never let him see a sweat, right? Never let him see a sweat. Always on the surface seem like you've got it together and you're towing the party line and, you know, in polite society, you never make anybody uncomfortable. What does it suggest that beneath the surface are sweating buckets? Stories about that. I had a a student at UCLA who once said, she said, um, I know on the surface I look really put together. And she did. She said, I know on the surface I look really put together, but inside I'm a raging mess and I'm trying to keep all of you from seeing it. That's what story's about, the raging mess. And it's that internal struggle that the plot puts the protagonist through that we come for. That's what the third rail is. Without that, as I was saying, then you just have a bunch of big things that happen. And even if they're like hard big things, because they're not causing this internal struggle, which is what we come for, that inside intel about what things really mean, the things we don't actually say out loud, then even if it's like physically hard, it's still completely boring because it's not costing your protagonist anything. Think of story as an emotional cost-benefit analysis of taking a particular course of action. It's all emotion-based. It's all this internal struggle. So most of my listeners write for kids mm-hmm. and teens, middle grade a sure. lot. Um, I'd love to hear if you have any ways in which you think your techniques might be applied differently, or would it be the same it's in exactly books for kids? The same. Like really, truly. I mean, it's really exact. I mean, unless you're talking about very, very, very small kids in picture books, and that well, it's it it is even with that. But if you're talking middle grade or YA, it's exactly the same. I mean, obviously you know, a misbelief. <laughs> you can't have had a misbelief for 20 years if you're, if you're eight. <laughs> it can right. feel like it's 20 years. In fact, mm-hmm. in fact, think about it though, just even as adults, it, it doesn't, it seem like, it's like when you think about your life from, you know, from when you first started to have memories, let's say kindergarten up through the end of high school, we have such amazing granular memories of all of that. But now think about your life from like, you know, I don't know, 25 to 35 or 35 to 45. It's like a blur. (laughs) I don't know, because those moments are so packed with things that are new. So it, you know, it really is exactly the same, exactly the same process. There's, there's no difference. So even though that misbelief might be fresh, right? Yes. <laughs> like, yeah, absolutely. Totally might be fresh a year old. You know, I mean, often it's not what happened right before the story starts, but yeah, you know, if, if you're writing about a, a seven-year-old, maybe, absolutely. Again, it, it's still, you know, it's still built to something that's now holding them back. But yeah, I mean, it, it obviously can't be for decades if you're only seven. <laughs> it can feel like decades, but it isn't. And it doesn't necessarily have to be that deep scar, like emotional trauma well, but here's the, kind of thing. It is, though, because think about it. I mean, that, I think, is where people make mistakes when they when they think of trauma. I mean, there aren't 
normal childhood traumas that, I mean, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, but I won't tell you. When I look at my own life, something happened to me in, and this happened in I, I, three seconds when I was 13 years old that scarred my life from that moment. And I still struggle with it now, more decades since then that I want to admit to being alive. If I told you what that thing was, you'd go, okay, fine. Don't tell me then. But I wouldn't because it would mortify me. It would more, I've never spoken it out loud to anybody, but it is, if I did, you'd go, I don't even understand why that would embarrass you. That is nothing. That is, that is the most smallest minute. I can't believe you even paid attention to that. Right. And yet I did. So the point is, is that trauma doesn't mean they got sucked up into a spaceship and taken to Mars or, you know, <laughs> throw them in a white van. And, you know, we're not talking Kimmy Schmidt here. I mean, it can be something that to the rest of the world looks like nothing, but it hit at that moment and told that character something about them and the way the world, because think of the reason they come in when we're kids and when we're young, it's like, I'm sure, you know, you've heard of, and, and your listeners, you, or, you know, people have kind of heard even just in passing about, you know, Maslow's, you know, pyramid of needs, you know, Abraham Maslow. And he said, as humans, we have this pyramid of needs. And at the base of the pyramid is the first thing we need is like food, water, shelter. And then it goes up at the top is like a sense of purpose and, you know, community, but he's wrong because the first thing we need is not food, water, and shelter. The first thing we need is somebody who cares enough about us to give us those things, because let's face it as a baby, <laughs> if you have to get those things yourself, you're kind of out of luck. So mm -hmm. kids are, that's the thing people, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm you know, writers of, of kid lit. I mean, so many of them, you know, really have to get that kid logic is far more raw and sophisticated and open and honest than adult logic. They haven't learned euphemisms yet. They don't know. They look at it and they see it and they say what it looks like, which is why your kids can embarrass you so much in public. <laughs> I mean, they get it. So, so, so it, again, the point is it doesn't have to be a trauma like held at gunpoint trauma. It can be something that nobody else saw as trauma except that one person and it's stuck. Right. So uh, do you have time for a listener question? Sure, of course. Well, first of all, I just got a shout out from a listener and I did not get paid for this, by the way. But this listener is obsessed with Story Genius and she says, I swear I got my book deal because of her. This is the only method I use now. Wow. So congratulations on that ring endorsement. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but uh, I do have a question. So a writer asks, I'm taking a break from querying to do a revision after rejections on a couple of fulls, partials, and several queries. The biggest piece of general feedback I received was that they loved the concept and voice, but they didn't fall in love with it as they hoped, quote unquote. Is this a reflection on my writing? How do I get writers to be more emotionally invested in my story? Okay, that's, and here is, I mean, I, could I have a minute with this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they'll stop me because I might talk for a week. Um, but so don't let me do that. But here's the thing. It has nothing to do with writing. Writers make a massive mistake in thinking it's about learning to write well, as opposed to learning to tell a story. And the only way that you can get your get readers involved emotionally in your character is to go back and do what we've been talking about, this internality, because that's what the problem is. You, this person probably writes beautifully. Who cares? It doesn't matter. What matters is, is this internal struggle. That's where the sense of urgency comes from. But it doesn't come from 
you know, something generic, like, you know, the, the characters being chased down the street by someone who's going to shoot them. And you think, well, well readers are going to get involved because, you know, that person doesn't want to get shot. Well, nobody wants to get shot. It's generic. It's why does it matter to that person in that moment, given the internal thing they're struggling with, given what their agenda is, it is that internality. My guess is, is that she, I assume everybody's a she, <laughs> I just do. <laughs> the whole world is female to me. Um, I, I would guess that, uh, that she's probably stayed away from internality, that she's probably stayed away from that character making sense of things. And what I always say to people is go back and see how much that internality is there and how much that is what's grabbed you, the way the character's making sense of it. But you can only know how a character's making sense of it by, by doing this work that we're talking about. Not in general, never with simple declarative sentences, but literally in granular scene form, writing out the why so we're inside their skin, inside their head, as they're having to make this tough decision. The other problem often is, is that writers will put characters on the page and they don't have an agenda. I mean, and they're, so they're just reactive. That would be my other guess, that this character's probably just reactive to things that are happening as opposed to being driven by whatever her agenda actually is. You know, we expect mm -hmm. characters to step onto the page with a story-long agenda. That way we know what they want and we can anticipate what they might do. If they're just reacting to what's happening, there's nothing for us to anticipate or or think about. And it's funny what, what I was you know, saying this to a, you know, to a writer who I work with, she said, I wanted to see what, you know, I wanted to see what you're talking about, this internality in this backstory. She said, so I, I read, um, I was reading uh, Sharp Objects, you know, Jillian Flynn's first, first novel um, that everybody knows of now because of the HBO, HBO uh, miniseries. She said, I'm halfway through the book and I've highlighted 60, that's 6-0% of the book. And I was saying that I often guessed in a, there's an a amazing teacher name, I think it's Melina Watros, who teaches at, at Stanford um, Continuing Education, a writing class. And uh, I, I guess almost every quarter, I think I guest in her class, uh, you know, on just like we're doing here, not actually going to Stanford, unfortunately, that would be nice. <laughs> but, um, but I told that story and she said, yeah, she said what, she said, what I have writers do in my class, she says, is I have them read the first chapter of the Hunger Games, you know, which everybody thinks of as this rip roaring adventure to see really how much of that is internality and backstory. When you think about the Hunger Games, which I admit to I read the whole trilogy in like two weeks. I could not put it down. Um, but, you know, when you think about it, you know, Katniss Everdeen gets, doesn't get picked, her sister gets picked, and then she's going to go to the games. And what she's struggling with and what we, get, what we get the backstory, you know, about is, I mean, many things, but but in in particular, and, you know, the arc that goes through of the entire set of novels is, can she kill PETA? You know, I mean, she's going to go and she wants to kill everybody so she can, you know, live because that's the way the Hunger Games works. But then she'd have to kill the person who she's teamed up with, who she knows. Could she do that? And that's, you know, so in other words, it's a question going forward, but she looks to the past. You know, she has memories of what happened and, you know, he's out there and the mother and she tries to get the bread and the mother goes in and he throws her the loaf and gets in trouble. And, you know, and at that moment you think, yeah, no, she can't kill him. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it goes forward with that struggle. So um, that would be my guess, that we're locked out of the characters. Uh, another thing that writers do on that level is they'll write very visually. In other words, it's as if that we're seeing it on a movie screen and we're not inside the characters at all. We're locked out. I mean, a way to think of it is, is that your reader doesn't care what happens. 
They care why. We don't come for what we come for why. And why is always internal and why always comes from the past. It's how we make sense of everything. Without that, you just have a bunch of things that happen. And that's what people, what agents and editors mean, I think, when they say that they felt like an emotional distance yes. or something like that. Like the, they use that kind of phrasing, yes. like, oh, I felt mm, it was a little distant and authors never know what right. that means. Yeah, that's what that means. It's, it's, it's really hard. I mean, that's why for, for me, when I work with writers, when I want, I never write notes to anybody ever, never write anybody a note because it's too easy to misinterpret it. It's way easier to go in and go back and forth and talk about the why. And that starts the, oh, well, I see what you mean. You can go back. And it's like it's like the difference between, you know, digital and, and analog. It's just goes so fast because, yeah, that's what my advice always is. And, you know, when I'm talking to people about writing this, you know, the, the backstory stuff, again, backstory is not pre-writing. Backstory is not, I'll figure this out. I'm doing research. And now the real writing starts when I get on page one. It is real writing. A lot of it ends up in the novel in the form of backstory, memories, you know, conversations, what goes through the character's head. It's, it's, it's again, on every page of the novel. Um, <clears throat> but I, I will tell writers, if you're going to do that, even if you're going to write your novel in the third person, do it in the first person. Write all of the exploratory stuff in the first person, because then you're less likely to do a writerly thing and get caught up describing what something looks like. Why are you describing it? Well, I just told you, because that's what it looks like. Like, who cares? When you write in the first person, it's it's harder to screw up that way. Writers do it. The, the most talented writer I ever worked with um, who came to me, she had just gotten uh, an MFA from Columbia and said, I, I, there's some, she thought there's something wrong with her plotting. And she was, I mean, she went on to get a seven, like oh, $2 million, whatever advance. Her book became a bestseller. Um, and, uh, you know, but when she came in and she had, it wasn't a YA. Oh, it's funny. I've discovered so many of the books I really like. They're not YAs, but the main characters are like teenagers. That's <laughs> really interesting. <laughs> anyway, her main character, um, when we were working on it was 14. And the thing is, she was like super, super astute, this character, Evie. She was super astute and she could look at her best friend and understand why her best friend was doing what she was doing. She could look at her parents who were divorced and why her mother was doing it, what was going on with her dad. And she was always right. But the problem was none of it affected her. There was that distance you're talking about. She had no agenda. So even when she dug deeply into what was going on, it didn't affect her in any way at all, other than making her sad or happy. It didn't play forward. What was going on with those characters didn't play forward. And the minute she tapped in and, and started to, to dig up the stuff we're talking about, it just, you know, it just, it just, it just leapt off the page. Super. So, um, so what is next for you? Like, do you have a new book coming out, workshops you're teaching, anything like that? Um, I have uh, several classes I'm very proud of on a website called Creative Live. It's, it's a pay site. You, you can buy the class. Um, I have one called Wired for Story, How to Become a Story Genius that runs through everything and, and, and a little bit more actually in the book Story Genius. That's a, it's like a six hour class. And then I did four... Uh, shorter classes. Again, you can buy them all individually. One on 
what to put on your first three pages, one on how to get emotion on the page, again, which is a lot of what we've been talking about and which is mistaught everywhere because you don't get emotion on the page with body language or hearts pounding or, or talking about emotion. You get emotion on the page based on what we've been talking about, this internal, this internal struggle. Uh, there's one on what your reader expects or hardwired to go in expecting and how to meet those expectations. And, um, and one on the anatomy of a scene, like what actually goes into a scene so that you can break scenes down. Um, again, a scene and the misnomer of that is the notion that you could learn to write a scene and then you write a bunch of scenes and string them together and you have a story. And a scene, there's no such thing as a, as a scene separate from a story. It's all part of a continuum. And so it's how to be sure that what you're writing is part of the continuum and to be sure that what's happening in the plot is, is hitting that third rail. And, um, I'm not, I'm not talking about it yet, but I am working on an, another book that, um, that, that will come out in, I think it's March of, of 2021. That's okay. Well, I won't, I won't pester you about that, that, but I will, I will put links to the creative live classes in, the show notes. And I also should note that I have a copy of story genius to give away to Patreon folks. So get on that, or you can get the book from your local library or independent bookstore or wherever fun books are sold. (laughs) So I ask all my guests every time I almost said every week, but let's be honest, I don't do this every week. (laughs) Uh, what are you obsessed with? It does not have to be bookish, but it can be. And I will start with mine. So you have a chance to think about yours. My obsession this week, I feel like everyone in the world has already seen Russian doll on Netflix, but just in case you're part of the lives under the rock crowd, like me, (laughs) Russian doll is a series on Netflix created by and starring Natasha Leone. Who's fantastic. Um, it's basically, I can't tell you anything about the plot or the story. I can't tell you anything. It's a secret. (laughs) I can say it is darkly humorous. It is mind bending and it's completely addictive. So if you're thinking you start it and you're thinking, Hey Jen, this seems weird. I don't know if I'm into this. Well, the episodes are really short. So I urge you to stay through episode three and then try and stop because you can't. Um, The writing is totally propulsive. The plot is high concept. It does not go where you think it's going to go. And it helps, too, that the whole thing is, like, permeated with great music and performances. I binged all eight episodes in one night, and it was worth feeling tired the next day. <laughs> Russian Doll on Netflix. Lisa, yeah. what are you obsessed okay. with? Well, first, let me just echo what you just said. <laughs> I <laughs> loved Russian Doll. I, I could not. And I, I had read that, you know, the, go through the first three episodes. And, uh, because, and I know what you're talking about, like, at the end of that third episode. For me, it just took one episode. I mean, oh yeah. I mean, I was in immediately, yeah. but I can see, I could see if you were having a moment where you were like, what yeah. then that, right. because part of it is there's a very high concept situation. It's not a groundhog's day, exactly. but it's like, but you, got that kind of yeah. vibe, but I can see where somebody would think there's no way that they can pull this right. up. Kind of like the good place yeah. or something. I mean, exactly it, you can't like sustain this. <laughs> you cannot sustain this. Yeah. There's no way they're going to be able to keep this going. But then you realize it all changes yeah. in episode three. So yeah. that's why I would say yeah, that. Exactly. I was in immediately too. Yeah, it's anyway, wonderful. Go on. So the one thing, I mean, I'm trying to think, because I, I have so little time to watch or uh, embarrassingly even read, but there is something that's more obscure that for some reason I am just deeply loving. And it's uh, um, 
It's an Australian show and it's called Please Like Me. And the Mm. star is this guy named Josh Thomas. And he won a bunch of awards as a comedian. He's super young, like when he was 15 in Australia. And he's this young gay guy and it's just about his life. And there are four seasons of it. And I cannot, I love him. I love all the characters. I feel like I am going to be so sad when it ends. In fact, I'm actually, because they're on Amazon. I, I totally admit that I, I can't watch commercials, so I buy everything on Amazon, except the fourth season, which I'm going to have to actually um, subscribe to Hulu to be able to watch because it's only on Hulu. But he's just, he's just, it's a character I've not seen before, a group of characters I've not seen before. And it's not just, the, you know, he's, he plays someone who's, I think, just turning 21 in it, but also there's his mother and his father. So there's a kind of older generation as well. It's just wonderful. Um, it's called Please Like Me, which is, <laughs> which is such a great title anyway. But I, I guess I have to reactivate my Hulu yeah, account. Yeah, it's anyway, John, John, he just, I just read, because I mean, I became a fangirl. Like, like I started to go to YouTube and like watch talk <laughs> shows he was on and, you know, and, and he just got a deal to do a show called It's Gonna Be All Right from some station i never heard of that might even have been an offshoot of some disney something which of course he's like the he's like the, the un-disney so I, you know in whatever that would be but apparently he's got a 10 episode deal for something new but he's just charming i just uh, anyway i totally recommend it. it's called please like me okay that is a good obsession i will look it up uh lisa thank you so much for joining me ah, my pleasure and i know i went blah 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 so <laughs> <laughs> i can talk forever it's okay. Well, well, we'll get people to sign up for your classes, and then you can talk forever at them. Yay. <laughs> I love that <laughs> All right. See you on the internet. Yep. See you there. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Literati Cast. If you'd like to support the show and possibly win a copy of Story Genius, the Literati Cast has a Patreon. Patreon.com slash Literaticat. Throw in a book, and you just might win books. Also, you'll have a chance to chime in questions for future guests and possibly give me ideas for future guests. Also, if you like the podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Reviews help more folks find the show. Obviously, if you hate the show, please do not leave a review. Thank you. Links to Lisa Cron's classes, books, and more will be up in the show notes at jenniferlaughrin.com slash literaticast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.